Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 20, and we are obviously in the new year, and it's that time of year where everybody is getting prepped and making all their choices uh, and decisions to get ready for the first uh, upcoming races, which will be here late in January, and then for NASCAR, uh, their first races in February. So when I was testing back in the days, the January was always something you look forward to because it was when you would actually head to Daytona and, and do your three-day tests, and then you would go to other places and test. And now, of course, they have uh, stopped all testing except for IMSA. IMSA still does, and IndyCar still gets to test. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's something that you can at least have at your disposal to keep an eye on and uh, check on what's going on in racing. But NASCAR is pretty stagnant at this time of year. They uh, have the capabilities, though, now to do a lot of simulation, and they do a lot of their work in the wind tunnels as well as doing a bunch of CFD modeling. So the whole dynamic has changed uh, for the month of January. But this is this is a big month for IMSA. And, you know, I wanted to start this um, episode off a little bit kind of kind of leading up to NASCAR and Jim France and IMSA because they're all interconnected and maybe some of the reasoning about some of the changes that are, are uh, you know, kind of being imposed and we'll shed some more light on the excitement about all that for the upcoming Rolex 24. So I guess in, in starting, uh, look, I look back at NASCAR in really it's early days and we talk about OEM involvement and, you know, OEM involvement really is, you know, it stems from the being original equipment manufacturer because that's that's Ford Motor Company, Chevrolet, you know, and um, Dodge, all the series that are backed by the actual motor companies. Early on, there was a lot of manufacturer support and a lot of manufacturer, you know, parity. Uh, there was all kinds of automobiles. You look back in the 70s and you had Dodge Daytonas, you had Dodge Chargers. You had the Plymouth Superbird, which was a great car aesthetically. And then on into like the late 70s, early 80s, you had the Buick Regals, the uh, Buick LeSabres. We had the Chevy Lumina, which is what I won Daytona with. And earlier than that, we had the Ford Fairlane, Ford Galaxy, the Cyclone. I remember going to my first, uh, Riverside, uh, and the first time I drove for George Jefferson was in an actual Ford Torino. So very old, heavy, big you know, cumbersome type of race car body styles. But Oldsmobile had their Cutlass, the Olds Delta 88, the Pontiac Grand Prix, which I did run in the late 80s, and then the Pontiac Le Mans and the Ford T-Bird. Uh, so just to give you a few of the names that kind of bring back memories of the styles of body, and you, you can kind of, kind of grasp how this evolved. 
from big heavy cars with big bumpers, and then they move along to more of the plastic type bumper stages. Well, I think it's worth mentioning to the listeners that don't know this, but these cars back then, literally you could drive them off the lot and drive them to the racetrack and race them. You could never do that now. In fact, it was always comical when we would have sponsors and we would do the show car appearances for them. And they didn't understand why we had to have a hauler take these cars to say a Walmart parking lot. And we had to have, you know, the engineer there to start the car and we had to have the mechanics to heat the oil. And, you know, you can't just take a car now, a NASCAR car and drive it. It is impossible. And our owners with Starcom learned the hard way, a very embarrassing lesson. They were adamant, one of them, that he was going to have this in the parade. And it uh, turned out that he was pushing more than he was walking. So, but it is definitely very different than it used to be. And I mean, these cars now have, they're too low to the ground. They have no suspension. They have no engine. I mean, you can go into more detail on that, but it is definitely changed. Well, the cars now, you know, they're, they're all dry sumped. So you really have to heat the oil to be able to get, because of the bearing clearances in the engines, you have to do all these things to prep them before you can fire them. And then you know, they require air to come through the front grill work to cool the radiator. And these car, these, you know, these engines, they uh, have a lot of compression. They build a lot of temperature. So if you don't have an actual show car motor, which is almost like a, a box stock type unit, which we took up there, uh, you know, you're talking about a three little three disc clutch and it's tough to keep the thing, you know, uh, moving in, in a parade, you start and you stop and then there's no, you know, there's no air going through it. So it wanted to overheat. It was just a cluster and, you know, it was just not what they anticipated it being. And it really just, you know, the car wasn't really conducive to going to a parade. But, you know, they learned and uh, we laughed about it, you know, after the fact. But, you know, early on, as we, we touched on, racing was that, you know, when they said stock car racing, and that's exactly what it was. It was actual cars, you know, off the dealer floor or, you know, the car that you owned. And much to the dismay of some wives, I'm sure that, you know, they would go spend money and buy a car and drive it off a lot and head to Daytona Beach. And or if they had a car, they would just take off and head to Daytona Beach, drive it down there. Then they would change tires and make the adjustments they had to do, you know, and get ready to go run the race. And hopefully she still was in one piece so they could turn around and come home. And, you know, it was just totally different uh, back then and early on in racing, when I was even involved early in the seventies, you know, some of those cars, um, you know, the early cars that I was racing, you know, we had still had to run, you know, the stock stub type of, uh, car. So it's the unibody car. And, you know, until, you know, until like we talked about in our last episode where they started with the actual box tubing chassis. You know, before that, it was all just a, an actual car that had a unibody and they uh, altered all the stock suspension. You went to the junkyard and you bought your parts and pieces and you, you know, strengthened them. You made them more rigid and where they would, you know, hold up under the, uh, under the beating that they would take. So it did, it did, and it was very different. Uh, and, you know, again, it evolved like it always does. And they started going to the box tubing cars and then, they still use a lot of stock parts that were, you know, and then you would make their own. And then eventually, obviously now everything's CNC'd and you got billet parts and pieces. And so, you know, it's just been, and a lot of it is the same geometry for the most part. Uh, and, you know, obviously some changes uh, on the spindles and things like that. But 
primarily the same type of geometry, uh, and then they you know work from there and just uh, actually make the parts where they'll go more cycles. Every every part has a cycle, and we have metal involved. You know, metal has its cycles, and it's uh, only going to go so far before it actually succumbs and breaks. But that's what you know. The involvement, what I was really trying to get to, is the fact that OEM and all the manufacturers were involved early, and you know, you had your Ford Motor Companies, your Plymouths, um, you know, Chevrolet, a lot of the big, you know, the big three or the big four were really heavily involved. And, you know, they were the one that were supporting uh, the series. They were supporting racing itself. And again, the old adage was what wins on Sunday sells on Monday. And that's really what that old adage. And when you first got into racing from a marketing perspective, that's really what you were, you know, being told. And that's what the concept and the platform was. And that's why the OEMs were in there. And And it's a great marketing platform. It's a shame that it, you know, it didn't stay that way because it certainly was a way to keep the OEMs involved and give money to the teams because it did boost the sales, I'm sure. Well, it did. Uh, I think what, what happens though, like anything, you know, when you start having this type of level and, you know, of excitement and notoriety and things escalate, you know, the money starts getting bigger, more people get involved and then the manipulation comes in and winning is, you know, you're on live television now and you're vying for those marketing dollars from fortune 500 companies. So everybody starts putting a much more concerted effort into winning and being productive and doing everything they can at all costs to win races. So when that happens, NASCAR has to keep parity. And the problem with having all the OEMs in there was is that all their engineers and all of their people and their aerodynamicists, all of those people are striving to find the best car, the best compromises in the body, you know, cheated up, manipulated, you know, they, they weren't the stock car anymore, but they were being narrowed and they were being squeezed and flattened and rounded and sharpened. So all of these things they would do And then a lot of sandbagging started where they were doing all these things and laying back and practice and testing when NASCAR was there watching to try to make sure that all the series and all the OEMs and the teams were relatively close. So they would put on a good race. And then you come back to Daytona for the race after testing. And then one make is basically running away with things. And then, you know, Bill France senior and junior were not happy. They got pretty ill and they would set these guys down. They'd call the crew chiefs into the office and say, what is you, what are you doing? You know, you know what? And they knew that you had, you know, tricked them at that point. So they got very upset by it. And that was the, the time when the rules started changing and then way more NASCAR rules started coming on board all the templates started coming on board. So anytime you have, you know, people manipulating and cheating and doing those things, you just come and ask her, had to respond with more confines and rules and restrictions to make them create better parity. And France Sr. seems like he had quite the iron fist on things. And he, his big focus was, you're not going to stink up my show. And so you're not going to have, um, you know, one driver completely lead all of the laps. That's not going to be the epitome of what he thinks entertainment is. Now, this is true. Bill France Sr. started that, 
and Bill France Jr. Uh, ended it. Uh, he, you know, when he came and he was the man at the helm, he was much the same way. They were very heavy fisted. They ran this show. They owned it. It was their sandbox, and you just got to play in it. And you know, they were. I mean, they were not easy on you. I mean, if you did do things that you know caused them grief or put egg on their face, then there was retribution. I mean, they were not going to allow it, and uh, they were. I mean, they would go make changes right then and there. I mean, they would, you know, change the restrictor plate. They would add spoiler. They would take away spoiler. They would stop you in a heartbeat. And it was all about the show. And it was all about making sure that everybody had somewhat of a fair shot. But that's the problem that, you know, they had with, with trying to keep the manufacturers, you know, on a somewhat of a level playing field, right? So that... You still got to go out and race and perform and the best man wins, but, you know, it was somewhat fair and that nobody was really trying to really, you know, compromise things so, so badly. But that was what and how the things progressed. And, you know, as, as things kind of moved along, you know, the, the cars changed, you know, the cars got smaller. And if you remember, you know, back in the eighties, they all had steel bumpers. And the bumpers were well off the ground. And then all of a sudden, we got into, you know, the mid-80s, you know, where all of a sudden you start looking at, like, the first four Thunderbird that came out there um, after the box style, one in 82, 83, the one that Elliot won all those races with. It had a really rounded nose, rounded bumper, and it was a lot lower to the ground. And then you started seeing air dams. And then that's when things just really took off. And, you know that's when everybody got involved from an aerodynamic standpoint and the cars just started, you know, changing the draft started changing and the, the way the cars drove. So the, you know, the OEMs at that point, there was times that, you know, they, they in the earlier days, they even pulled out at one point and then came back, but it has been a difficult task and NASCAR has managed it as well as they could. But their whole thought process was they wanted more OEMs involved. They would want like a, you know, they want all manufacturers if they could, but it's difficult because the rules stipulate that, you know, with whatever body you have, like a Chevrolet, say, you know, alumina, well, you have 358 cubic inches and it has to be normally aspirated and it has to be a V8. And so some manufacturers that maybe didn't really have that, you know, at their disposal would have to tool up and completely redesign and as a deterrent to bringing them in. So you basically had, you know, Ford, Chevrolet, Dodge, and uh, Chrysler, and, and those types of entities that kind of stuck around and pretty much were, you know, the group that was there. And then, you know, it sort of diminished, you know, and, and you know, Pontiac was there, uh, and but, you know, they had it, they used the Chevrolet, and Oldsmobile was there, but they used the Chevrolet. So you had some body styles of the OEMs, and they had to produce so many of those vehicles that had to be for sale to be able to run those in NASCAR. So again, a lot of things and elements behind the scenes that, you know, the OEMs had to do, you know, that would keep their involvement. So it was financially draining, and there's a lot to do. And, you know, at some point, you know, the cost effectiveness becomes the issue. So that's where we ended up and that's where we are, are at now. And I think the reason I'm talking more about the OEMs is because I think leading up to something that has just transpired and when I want to talk about the transition now into IMSA because, you know, when you had Bill France Sr., Bill France Jr., and then 
once they had passed away, then now you have Jim France, who is now taking over and he pretty much manages is at the helm. Well, after his son had a brief interlude with it and didn't work out well at all. That is correct. So we had a little a little departure there. But then, you know, basically Jim France, you know, ends up being the man at the helm. And Jim, you know, you know, if you look back when we had the first um, I think it was 1966 uh, was the first ro- you know, d- the first 24-hour race at Daytona. And Jim has always been a lover of IMSA racing, loves road racing, loves the IMSA series, and now the IMSA WeatherTech series is his baby. And that is, in fact, I think, the reason why you see the next-gen car. The next-gen car is you know, another iteration of what an IMSA car is. You know, it's got, you know, um, independent front and rear suspension. It's got the X-Track, you know, gearbox in it, sequential. Uh, you know, it's got a really, you know, multi-adjustable shocks. It's got, you know, really big brakes. If you look at the car, you know, with a, it's got a complete belly pan. It's got, you know, a diffuser in the back. Those are all the elements that a GTD or a GTD Pro car have. Yeah, you know, a road course car. They're for, a road course car a in IMSA, in, in IMSA. So that, you know, the next-gen car is an iteration sort of like that. And the frame the frame itself is kind of like an older Trans Am-looking car where it had a lot of box tubing, you know, rectangular box tubing, and the car was very rigid. Uh, and that's been one of the issues of the car uh, as of late. But, you know, it was interesting to see that transition, and you kind of knew where it was going, but that's why road racing has become a major factor of the next gen car for NASCAR, because that's what I think it's, it's, um, probably more suited for. And, uh, so, but getting on to where we're going here in the late in January, we, you know, we're getting ready for the roar, uh, before the 24 and then the actual Rolex 24, which is an endurance race at Daytona for 24 hours. And the, if you've paid attention to this or you're maybe you're this is the first time you're hearing it, what has happened in the past is they had GTP cars, which was a grand touring prototype, a car that I actually drove a GTP car back in 1991 and had a ball. It was one of the most, you know, intriguing cars to drive full ground effects, you know, the little bubble, uh, you know, it, Tell the listeners what full ground effects means, especially in comparison to the big, heavy NASCAR car that you are used to driving. It has a, all kinds of things that channel the air. Underneath the car, it's got like a complete belly pan. It's all sealed off. You know, it's got like a diffuser at the back, which funnels and channels the air out the back of the car. And then it's got, uh, a you know, a splitter diffuser, you know, kind of a splitter up front, you know, an air dam thing that basically has a little bit of a raised up center section where the air is actually going underneath and creates downforce and then channeled to the back. They run canards in the back. They've got some, you know, kind of dive plane, uh, little flippers there in the front that, you know, they call them dive planes and they're actually just collect air things and they manipulate the air to create downforce. And the more, you know, it's just about a balance, you know, front and rear down, and you're trying to keep the drag as minimum as you can. So that those cars were just very aerodynamic and they were just very fast. And that was the, the years back in the early nineties when like the, the, the Nissan, Jeff Brabham was in the Nissan and you had the, uh, the Jaguar and you had the Yost Porsche and then you had the Chevy Spices. 
And I ended up having the opportunity to drive for Tom Milner out of uh, Winchester, Virginia. And it was a Chevy Spice. And it was a normally aspirated uh, small block Chevrolet. And it was some of the other cars had, uh, I think they were turboed. Um, but it was a unique car. And I loved getting the opportunity. And, you know, do you go to Daytona? And I'll tell you a little story. I, I'm go to Daytona with this thing. And I got there uh, relatively late in, in the grand scheme of things from practicing. And it had been raining. And my first opportunity to get in the car, you know, it was very damp. And here I am out there. I'd never, never ran in the rain. I mean, you just don't run stock cars in the rain, you know? And, uh, so I get out there, I go and the car's got you know, a lot of grip and surprisingly so, and I really am enjoying it. And, and it sticks to the ground, oh, which yeah. you're not used to. Usually the faster speeds you're lifting, right? Well, you, yeah, well, you, you still have downforce in a stock car, but you know, you know, you don't have as much downforce as something like this. And so the car is definitely hooked up. It's got a lot of grip, you know, a lot of lateral side bite. And, you know, the faster they go, the more downforce the actual, you know, body and, uh, and the car creates. So when you drive the car really hard and you manipulate a race car, which is the ultimate for a race car driver, you know, driving a race car is one thing and being proficient, but getting to the stage of, or the point that you really manipulate a race car and you're driving the car extremely hard and you are tapping into areas of yourself and the car. And that's what one of these cars would take all you really could give. And it was, they would run upside. If you ran them upside down, they'd run uh, upside down on the roof. That's wow. how much grip they have. If you tried to run it upside down, it would stick to the roof. So that's how much grip they had. And so you got to the race and I was racing. I had, you know, uh, three other co-drivers and Scott Sharp, who drove IndyCar, obviously was one of them, Brian Bonner, Jeff Klein, and myself. And we, uh, we had, we had a, a lot of fun. Uh, we started the race. I think Brian Bonner, um, started the race and then it started to rain. And I don't know, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know what the sequence was going to be. I don't think I was on tap to go out second, you know, but it was, it started raining and I'm not so sure the other guys really wanted to go out in the rain. So I got the tap on the shoulder and I'm going in second. The rookie gets the rain. Yeah, I get the rain. So, uh, off I go and take off and, you know, we're right in the thick of things and this thing's handling really well. And surprisingly enough, uh, I am, I'm running fourth and I'm running behind the Nissan, the Jag, uh, actually in the Yost Porsche, but I, the Nissan was running third with Jeff Brabham and I was, uh, fourth and I, this thing was, you know, it didn't have the power, uh, that the other, uh, three up front did. So they would kind of pull away from me getting out of the chicane and then come down in the front straightaway. And once we got down the front straightaway, we went into the first turn and through the short, uh, sections of the racetrack, I was making ground and I'd be all over Jeff Brabham coming to the chicane and driving, try to find a way around him coming out of the chicane back to the banking. And then he would like drive away, but it was a cat and mice game and I was having a ball and it was raining and you know, you got this one little windshield wiper and this thing is going, you know, flump, 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 flump. And now you can see your <laughs> red lights in front of you and just cause rain. it's dark. It's dark and it's raining. And, uh, you know, it's just, for a, for a stock car driver, it's a unique situation and you're really enjoying yourself and you're, you're intrigued and you're amped up and you know, we're in a dog fight and it's fun. And, uh, I know that it's 24 hours, but you're still pushing limits, you know, trying to get the most out of the car as you can. Right. And it's early on and we're running up front. And so I noticed that, you know, we're running along and we're just, you know, having a lot of fun, but 
there's a lot of buffeting going on with this car and it has this little side windows they are all carbon fiber and this thing's you know like porpoising back and forth the left side window is and i'm on the right side of the car and all of a sudden the door blows off and i'm <laughs> like what the and and i'm thinking to myself self this isn't right. And what do I do now? Are right? you getting all wet? Oh yeah. It's just pouring rain all over you. Right. I mean, these things just got, you know, it's hit, you know, they're not sealed up that great anyway, but there's just water everywhere coming in. And I got on the radio and I said, uh, I said, I just, uh, the door just blew off and, uh, I hear this voice and I, I, it was Tom and, you know, he's got a little bit of a, of a German accent. He's got a pretty big German well, accent. He, not, he, the other <laughs> German, the other guy did, he, he, but he does have a German accent and he's like, uh, and I go, Tom, I said, the door just blew off. And he goes, what did you say? I said, the door blew off. And it's silent. And it comes back and he says, can you drive it? No, he says. Oh, he, said, he goes, he goes, um, he goes, I don't know if he gets something. Did, like, you, did, say? You, did you say the door blew off? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, the left side door just blew off. And it's quiet. And then that's when he says, can you drive it? I said, yeah. I said, it's, everything's fine. It's just, there's just pouring ass rain in here. I don't know, you know, if it's going to hurt the car or what, you know, all the electronics are in the car and stuff. And all of a sudden I, I don't hear anything. And all of a sudden you hear, keep going. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. So I just keep digging. And all of a sudden the, you know, the caution comes out and I'm Cause sure. Cause there's a door on the yeah, track. I'm sure it was because of us and the door was a laying on the racetrack. But so we had to come in the pits and they, and I got out of the car, I believe, at that point, and then uh, they put a door on it, and then off they went again. But um, I think we ended up running sixth. But uh, you know, I drove again, you know, later on in the evening, and then you know, the next day, uh, it was fun because I, I got, you know, when I got through the night, you would, you know, you leave out of the car and you'd go right to catering and you'd eat, and then you go get a massage, and then you go back to the bus. And I was like, that was your, that was your deal. And I was like, man, this kind of racing isn't all bad, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, so, but in the morning, the next day, of course, you know, the weather had broke and it was drying out. And then, you know, you get that early morning stint and you're all of a sudden you're like, you know, just driving the car because it's got major grip now because it's not wet. And I am, I, mean, I am flying. I'm just having a lot of fun driving really hard, but now we're in the later stages and they're like, man, you got to slow down. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, we got to pace ourselves. You know, we can't have the motor break and we got to like pace ourselves. So we got to back off, you know? So I'm like, okay. So I started backing off and there's like, well, you got to, you got to slow down more. I'm like more. And they said, yeah. So I started backing up more. Now I feel like I'm not driving the race car to its fullest degree. Right. But they got a pace that they felt comfortable with. And I think we ended up six, but it was, you know, it was because of an engine failure or something. Right? Well, yeah, for that, for engine failure, you know, cause there was a stock block, you know, it's a stock engine. So I mean, it's got, um, you know, valve spring issues for a 24 hour race. And so they know kind of what, you know, what, what it needed. And so they had a pace and that's what we did, but it was a great experience. I loved it. And later on, I would get a, a chance to drive a Ferrari, uh, for Ferrari of Washington. And that was with, uh, Bill Oberlin and Court Wagner and another gentleman. And, uh, yeah, I mean, two very talented guys. I mean, you know, Bill Oberlin obviously was the winningest driver in, uh, you know, the GT series now and just got by Scott Pruitt. So, I uh, have a great enormous amount of respect for, for Bill and, uh, had a fun time in that car. And then I drove for Archangel Motorsports, Mike Johnson, who owned Archangel Motorsports and still does. Uh, I, he, he had the Archangel, uh, Lola. It was an open cockpit Lola. And my first opportunity to drive an open cockpit car at Daytona and, we led the thing and, uh, I was with Larry Alberto from Alberto beef jerky and, um, 
uh, evidently we had a problem right on a restart and I think, uh, I think he had spun it and we got hit in the tourist and took us out of the race, but we led that thing was in a position to have a Rolex and to win, but it just didn't uh, happen. But three great opportunities, uh, in the Rolex 24. And that's why I, I have a lot of, you know, keen interest in the race. And that's why I'm talking more about it now because it is really the start of speed weeks and it really is the beginning of racing, uh, as we know it. And, you know, it had, it has been going along at that same type of, of program. And then they had the, what they call the DPIs. So you've, if you've heard about the DPI car, just transition from the prototype to this DPI car and like the Cadillac. And what they've done is the situation being is in Europe, they have the WEC and then they have IMSA WeatherTech series here in the States. And the differences are, is that you know, you couldn't run the DPI at Le Mans, you know, in the WEC series. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, you know, one of those things where there was, you know, kind of like, it's not a global racing program. You know, you're basically the, the you have it in the Europe, right? European racing and the FIA and, um, you know, uh, endurance uh, class, the world endurance class. And then you have, you know, IMSA WeatherTech. So what they have done, you know, I think it's a vision that they've had and, and Jim France is part uh, of that, trying to find a global racing series and trying to put a situation together where everybody has the capabilities to race together so that they can bring a car from the, from Europe to run IMSA in the 24 hours of Daytona and vice versa. From here, you can take a LMDH car and go to, um, a race like Le Mans and run there with that against the, the hypercar, which is the LMH. And so, and when I talk about the two differences, what they've done is they've created these two uh, divisions now. And they are, this is the first time that they're going to run here this year uh, for the Rolex 24. So the cars have been, you know, designed. Uh, and what they are is, and, what, and part of the reasoning too is, is cost cutting. So they've been able to find a way to cut the cost back. The, the LMP1 car was wicked expensive. And what they've been able to do now is create this LMH car, which is a Le Mans hypercar. And then they have the LMDH, which is a Le Mans Daytona hybrid. So they, they all have a very similar style of looking in the cars. Uh, the uh, LMH, H car is made in house by the supercar fact, you know, factory teams. Right. And then the LMDH is uh, pride is kind of like, it's like the manufacturers get to put their kind of like stamp and the body styles aesthetically on the cars, but the chassis itself is like either like a Dallara, a Multimatic, a Leger or an Orica, which has been like the LMP2, LMP1 categories. So, but the differences are that there's really no budget for the LMH cars but they have a cost cap of about a million euro for, you know, the LMDH car. And that's really, you know, and then, you know, the differences are the bodies, you know, they all have kind of like um, a look to them. It looks sort of like what the makes are. So uh, it's really an interesting category. Um, you know, the cars make about 680 horsepower. They make about, I think, you know, 630 or so, six, you know, 20, something like that. But then they have this hybrid. And the hybrid is a, is an EV. It's a battery, um, type of regenerative type of process that adds about 67 horsepower and can really only be used above 75 miles an hour, but it comes out and equals out where all the cars make somewhere around, somewhere around, you know, 670 or 680 horsepower. And you would think they would be faster than that. 
Well, if you think about like NASCAR, I mean, the motor, the engines themselves, they'll make way more power. They'll make 900 horsepower or, you know, almost a thousand horsepower, you know, normally aspirated or with an EFI system. But in NASCAR, they make, I mean, they restrict them, right? They make, I think they're in the, like, uh, the six, I think right now they're around 760 or something like that, except for Daytona, Talladega, and I think Atlanta. And they run like that 550 package. Like last year, remember when we were in the Cup Series, they ran a 750 package and a 550 package. Right. So I think it's like around 760 or something like that for most all the races, except for Daytona, Talladega, and I believe it's Atlanta. They use that smaller restrictor type 550 package or so for that, or maybe just a little bit less. But that's that's the difference. But you know, 680 horsepower can go can go really fast because the car only weighs is so light. Oh yeah, it weighs a thousand thirty kilograms, which you know pound wise is about you know two thousand seventy pounds. So and a NASCAR car is how heavy? A uh, thirty four hundred pounds. Wow, that is a big difference. Big difference. So the horsepower to weight ratio you know, really allows the car to really go fast. Plus, when you have all that downforce that we talked about, right, the car is going to stick to the ground. You're running it on the mat. A lot of times you're dead in the throttle. You're carrying so much speed through the corners, uh, whereas a car like the NASCAR car just, you know, doesn't have the downforce and the car is very symmetrical and doesn't have a lot of side force and things, you know, built into it where, you know, the car really, you know, has to be slowed down to get through the corners, right? So that's the contrasting styles. But you know, there it really is um, an interesting car. And you know, the bodywork. Speaking of the bodywork, as we as I just said, the brand identity is really incredible. You start looking at like you know the the BMW. It has the big nostrils in the front of this prototype. Uh, the Cadillac's a lot sleeker. You know the you know there's an Acura. The Porsche is what Penske's running, and the Porsche has a unique style. So they they all have a unique style that is, you know, kind of along the lines of, of their brand. And, um, so, you know, now the OEMs have that, that brand identity, which is what they want. And, uh, so it's a unique, it's a unique thing. I'm excited about, you know, paying attention to it. And the key to this is that, so as I just mentioned and alluded to is like the LMDH teams here that are from the United States, they'll be able to take this car to Le Mans. And run in the in the uh, the WEC. So, you know the opportunity which you couldn't, which we you know you look at. Remember the on Netflix you see Ford versus Ferrari and the, those types of uh, things that we, when people go to Le Mans with a car. Well, we're back to that with these cars now. So a lot of you know uh, North American teams are going to have the opportunity to go and showcase over there and run Le Mans. And I think it just opens up a great you know uh, intercontinental affair, a global affair now. And that, you know, I think it's going to create a lot of great television, a lot of great, uh, optics for all of us uh, to follow. So I'm excited for Jim France. I'm excited for the whole, uh, IMSA weather tech uh, program that, um, I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, some of the, the, the interesting, interesting things about that hybrid system, right? You know, it, it does, regenerate through like some of the braking and all. And, and as I alluded to, right, it doesn't have it at all the time. So it just adds to when they come down the straightaways, when they get above 70 miles an hour, but Bosch is, um, the, you know, has develops, uh, the motor itself for the, you know, the hybrid system. And then Williams of F1, uh, they actually produce the power management and the energy storage of the battery itself. And then extract here who does 
um, all the stuff for the next gen car with the gearboxes, they do the, the complete gearing of the gearboxes uh, in, in the cars as well. So some of the same things that we saw with the next gen car here in our last stages of Starcom, you know, are still kind of like involved in the IMSA program too. So as you can see, a lot of cross-pollination of parts and, and concepts uh, from like the, the IMSA to the next gen car. And speaking of that, it's interesting because, you know, I was talking to Greg Ives, uh, you know, a week ago or so, and he come in in the shop and, you know, he does, uh, he has, he buys a lot of nitro carts and stuff for his, his son. And, uh, and so he was talking about the garage 56 car, which is the effort. I don't know if some of you have heard about that or not, but that is an endeavor that is being taken on by Chevrolet and Han and Hendrick Motorsports. And Greg is uh, crew chiefing it. And Chad Canales is like a team manager overseeing things for that uh, effort. And it's a next gen car that they are, you know, adding things to making changes and they're getting this thing ready to go run Le Mans. And this, this is kind of a, an open class that they develop and they allow different type of cars come to run this garage 56 um, category. And so they've taken the next gen car and they've added canards in the back and these die planes in the front, and they've made uh, changes to the car and different things and trying to get the car to be really proficient and doing a lot of, um, you know, endurance testing at Sebring and other places, Daytona, trying to get ready to take it to Le Mans uh, and run it there. So, a lot of exciting things from a road, road racing perspective that uh, are coming, you know, um, you know, available to, uh, to, to us to watch. So I'm exciting. I'm excited about that. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, road racing is definitely, definitely on a rise. And I think that's, you know, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not. Yeah. I think, you know, you look at Trans Am, you know, Trans Am uh, is, it's definitely growing in leaps and bounds. It used to be a great category, uh, you know, a long time ago. And back when Tommy Kendall and uh, Tom Gloy and, uh, you know, a lot of those guys, Wally Dolan back, you know, were running and you know, they're, you know, Roush had their cars and, you know, uh, all, a lot of great guys drove in that series. And then it kind of like went away and diminished a bit. And now this thing's come back and the Trans Am series is thriving. And this TA2 division is, you know, bringing 50 cars, 40, 45 to 50 cars every week. Uh, the TA program is on the rise again. So yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the whole road racing aspects are getting better. And, you know, IMSA has, if you look at the IMSA series, what you're going to see this month, the end of this month, is, you know, multi-class racing. So if you have not really paid attention to IMSA racing before, you might want to tune in because it's got uh, a multitude of cars racing in the series. And at Daytona uh, for the Rolex, you know, they're going to have the LMH cars, or I'm sorry, the LMDH cars. They're going to have the LMP2 cars, which are very similar looking. And then the LMP3 car, which the LMP2, LMP3 cars are that prototype looking car. Um, just different packages and they run and then they have the GTD, GTD Pro, they have the GT4 and the TCR series. So there are a lot of different types of cars in this and multi-class racing goes 24 hours and you have a lot of passing, you have a lot of overtaking, there's a lot of disparity in the speed. So, you know, there's a lot going on and I've been in that race numerous times in, in all of those different divisions, you know, so you've been in the fastest division where you're passing them all. And then you're in the mediocre, the middle of the class and you're having to deal with the fast guys coming on you, but you're having to pass the slow cars. And then 
you know, a little bit slower car, you know, from there. So it's, it really is a difficult task for drivers. You really gotta be on your toes. And, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of great drivers, uh, you know, getting opportunities to go run this. And so it's, um, it's worth watching and I hope that you'll all, you know, maybe take a look at it here and, uh, and watch the roar before the 24 and then, uh, you know, tune in. Uh, there's a lot of great coverage and I think, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. But when you get back to, you know, the OEM aspect, the OEM aspect, looking at, I'm going to read off a few names. And I think this is what Jim France really wants for the next gen car in NASCAR. They want more OEMs involved. Uh, obviously a bigger task to have happen, but they've pulled it off with this global uh, collection of cars, like the LMH cars, which is the WEC, the FIA World Endurance um, class, that's in Europe. And the names there, the Toyota, the Glickenhaus, Alpine, Van Wall, Peugeot, Ferrari, and there's rumors, if you're into really expensive, stylish cars, exotic cars, Bugatti, there's rumor that Bugatti is going to do an LMH car as well. And I will love Bugatti. And they have that, you know, instinctive, distinctive nose on the car on a Bugatti. And it'd be interesting to see what their uh, LMH car would look like. But looking forward to see what happens there. But if you go to there's a long list of LMDH cars. So I know that Jim France and, you know, John Doon and everybody there has to be excited about this. But at this stage in the infancy of it, you're going to see Audi, Porsche, Acura, BMW, and Cadillac at Daytona this year. And then you have for 2024, an influx of more, uh, OEMs coming in. You have Alpine, obviously, uh, that runs the LMH car coming Lamborghini uh, is scheduled. McLaren is likely Ford is talking about doing one. Uh, you got Phoenix racing proton with Porsche and WRT. So there are a lot of OEM manufacturers. And I think if this thing goes the way that it's going now, you're going to see more. And it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting as we, as we go, uh, to what this sport's going to look like here, uh, over the course. But I think a lot of eyes are going to be on Daytona. And then from there, the hypercars getting ready for Le Mans, uh, will be the next step. And if everything goes as planned and they have great racing, then I foresee, you know, some, uh, some great things for uh, the, the coming years and an escalation in this series. So a lot of, um, a lot of interest and a lot of excitement there and I'm looking forward to it, but you know, we, um, we got a lot going on, uh, beyond that we're testing uh, with nitro Motorsports in the trans am, uh, series. We're going to be leaving here in a, a week, week and a half for Coda. Uh, we're doing some testing with some Toyota drivers there, uh, getting ready to get some road racing experience for them and doing some testing. And then we'll head to NOLA and do a test there for a West coast driver. And then we have our own test uh, for the TA2 program in Trans Am in Sebring uh, late in the month. And that will be with all the TA2 cars. And we'll be taking, I think, four cars down there uh, and doing some extensive testing. Um, we're working very hard at trying to do what, you know, the NASCAR teams, you know, used to do a lot of. And that is trying to come up with, you know, certain things that you're trying to test and trying to find speed and you prove or disprove whether they're faster or they're not. So, 
Um, kind of going a step back to where we used to be in the cup series uh, and trying to really escalate our learning curve out here with the TA2. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about, you know, having an involvement in that and uh, Nick Tucker and everybody's working hard there and we're trying to, you know, get ready for that. So there's a lot happening here and a lot of the teams, you know, you hear a lot of things happening with the Xfinity teams. Uh, everybody's trying to find their final slots and, you know, get ready for, uh, you know, for Daytona. And you know, they got the clash coming up, you know, in early uh, February, and that'll be the kickoff for NASCAR. And so we're not far away from racing. And uh, I know that I'm, uh, I'm still excited about watching the football. We're getting to the playoffs, but you know, the next step is uh, is racing a few weeks from now. That's right, racing's coming up. So hope y'all enjoyed this episode. We've got some great announcements coming up next week. And um, as always, we appreciate your feedback. And any platform you do that on, please use hashtag race theory. Well, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Hope and Instagram at Derek Hope 00. And leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.